where shame is lost and where hope is found. That's one of the themes, actually, the book of Exodus. Uh, I want to tell you a story that I just heard uh, this past Thursday afternoon. Uh, her name is Sydney. Uh, she's been going to our church for about the last six months. Uh, Sydney's not actually her name. I've changed her name, but uh, she did give me permission to share her story. Uh, Sydney grew up here in West Michigan. Uh, parents always went to church. She uh, always went to church herself, was pretty engaged, even in youth group, kind of through junior high and freshman, sophomore year uh, of high school. Uh, she was a, a performer, okay? Now, not like where she did plays and stuff, uh, but like how she handled academics, how she handled athletics, uh, and how she handled church. A straight-A student. Uh, she was a, a varsity uh, swimmer, played actually a couple of different sports, but swimming was like her main jam. And uh, when it came to church, uh, church was kind of the same thing. Like she grew up uh, in the faith, uh, but it was really about like performing, right? If the bar was this high, uh, she would be this high, whatever that meant. In fact, she, she always felt like she was doing pretty good because she's like, look, even when I was in high school, senior year, a crazy weekend for me and my, and my girlfriends was we'd get together and play sorry and drink Kool-Aid. <laughs> like she's like, so compared to like everybody else she knew, she's like, I'm doing pretty good. I'm performing. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Uh, she wound up getting a, a full ride to uh, swim at a Big Ten college. Uh, when she got to college, she realized that the bar for athletics and academics had gone up significantly. And she was like, cool, I'm in. Like, that's what I do. I perform. So she jumped up, continued, in fact, wound up getting uh, a four-point throughout college, swam all four years. Now, she did realize when she got to school that she was no longer uh, uh, the big fish in the little pond. She had now become a little fish in a very big pond. And if she was going to actually contribute to the team, she had lots of work to do. So she put her heart and soul into that, into the athletics and into the academics Wherever the bar was, she wanted to top it. But when it came to her faith, she actually found that some of her friends that she first met her freshman year uh, would prefer to party on Saturday night late, uh, which made it really, really hard uh, to wind up going to church the next morning. And so she, quite honestly, had gotten kind of tired of performing for God. And uh, so she just decided she was going to kind of jump into that. And uh, that came with all kinds of uh, different issues uh, that began to, to show in her life and relationships and uh, how she was living, guilt that started to come up as a result of that. Uh, but that's just what it was, freshman year and sophomore year and junior year. And junior year, things were getting really, really, hot, really, really hard. It's just some really painful things that were happening, some choices that she had made, stuff that she was dealing with. And then she came home at the end of her junior year uh, to celebrate her, her brother's graduation, only going to be home for a week, and everything was great. At the end of that week, though, her parents told her that they were getting a divorce, and she had no idea, never saw that coming, and it absolutely rocked her world. And there was this thing in her life now that she could not perform and control. She uh, moved back to Indianapolis, where she was living for the summer with a, a friend of hers from the swim team. She had her ideal internship. It was exactly what she thought she wanted to do. She had an internship with the Indiana Pacers, and she found that she hated it. 
And she couldn't control what was going on in her parents' marriage, and she was devastated by that. And all the other things that had been going on for the last three years, and she started to sink into a depression. Uh, The girl that she was living with, a friend of hers, she had actually uh, met her freshman year. Uh, That girl had kind of grown up going to church, but it was earlier that summer uh, that she had interacted with this Christian organization, and she had become a Christian. And uh, that was a huge deal for, for Sydney. Uh, Sydney had seen this girl, and they had kind of lived the, kind of the similar lifestyle the whole time, and all of a sudden something was different. And that was her roommate for the summer, and uh, it was Saturday night, which is party night, and her, uh, her, her, her friend said, hey, Sydney, you want to go to church with me? Sydney was like, fine, sure, I don't have anything else, I guess, we're not going to party. So she goes to church, and she walks in the building, and she said, she told me, with like almost tears in her eyes, she said, I walked in there, and through the worship and through the teaching, uh, there was like this, she's like, I don't even know how to describe it, but there was almost like a physical weight that began to lift off my shoulders, off my soul. She's like, it was so crazy because I hadn't ever experienced anything like that before. She says, I didn't even have language for it. And she says, I, was, I couldn't even tell anybody else because it was, it was just so weird to me. But she said, I knew God was up to something. Um, that girl, her roommate, that had become a Christian, uh, wound up inviting uh, another lady to come and teach her how to read the Bible. Okay? So she, uh, a week later, invited Sydney. Hey, Sydney, you want to you sit in with us? It's just be like me and her. She's going to kind of teach me how to, how to read the Bible. And Sydney was like, all right, fine. And uh, Sydney knew something was going on inside, but she didn't know what. And so they sit down, and, and the lady starts talking about how to read the Bible, but she's kind of going through the gospel uh, out of the uh, book of John. And she's talking about how uh, it's not about performing and what you do. Uh, it's not about how good you are. It's, it's about accepting the substitute of Jesus Christ, that he died in our place. He paid for our sins, and, and he rose back to life. And, and when we invite him into our lives, there's nothing we have to do. We just have to accept this free gift of grace. And Sydney's sitting there, and she's like getting blown away with every word. She's like, I grew up in church, and nobody had ever explained the gospel to me that way before. I always thought it was something I had to do. This performance that, that it was about how good I was and, and that's whether or not God would accept me. And, and I'd always felt that I was pretty good, but I knew I wasn't that good right now. And all of a sudden I realized it's not about how good I am, it's this free gift. And, and through tears, she winds up giving her life to Christ that night. She prays and it's like, God, like, I need, come in. You, you can have me, all of me. I can't control this anymore. I'll never be good enough. And so God does this beautiful, miraculous move in her life, and, 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 and she feels the weight of that guilt just washed away, and it's beautiful and, and awesome until she met him. Hold on to that. We'll come back to Sydney's story a little bit later. Uh, this is kind of Israel's story as well. Uh, Israel needs rescue. They cry out to God. Uh, we've been reading this throughout the book of Exodus where God says that he hears and he sees and then he knows, which means he's coming to rescue. God says, I'm going to do this thing. And we learned last week that God actually removed the guilt of Israel, but through a substitute. You see, someone had to die. 
And that's why the Passover lamb was so important. You see, Israel was just as guilty as Egypt. They deserved the same punishment that Egypt was, even though Egypt was the oppressor, right? And Israel was the one who was being oppressed. God still said there needs to be a substitute for your sin. And so God allows the lamb to be slain, the blood to be put on the doorposts of the house. And then God passed over and God removes Israel's guilt. And that's exactly what God did for Sidney. He had removed her guilt through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But God didn't want to stop there for Sidney or for Israel. God wanted to move past the guilt to also remove their shame. And shame and guilt are not the same things. Let me explain the difference between shame and guilt. Uh, Brene Brown explains it this way. She says that uh, guilt is usually associated with what, with what you've done, okay? Your actions. Whereas shame is associated with who you are, your identity. Guilt is associated with your actions, the things that you've done. Shame is associated with your identity, who you think you are. Um, Dan Allender and Tremper Longman, they define shame as the traumatic exposure of nakedness. The traumatic exposure of nakedness. Now, they're not talking simply about physical nakedness. They're talking about when somebody sees us for who we really are, right, in our broken states, in our imperfect states, and we often attach the feeling of shame to that. Uh, We see this all the way back at the very beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 3, right, where Adam and Eve decide that they don't trust in God's goodness, that God actually has their best in mind, and they go and they listen to the lies of the evil one, and they eat the fruit from the knowledge, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And what do they do right after that? It says their eyes were open, and what do they do? They hide. Yeah, that's right. They hide. They hide, and God comes looking for them, right? God knows where they're at, but he comes looking for them, and he says, uh, why are you hiding? And they said, uh, we're hiding because we're ashamed of our nakedness. And God says, who told you you were naked? Who told you you were naked? You see, up until that point, they had been running around like that all the time. No shame. But in that moment, when they choose to disobey God, when they choose to go their own way, instead of following what God desires for them, all of a sudden that comes up and shame is attached to it. See, shame is more than simply guilt. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to Open up to Exodus chapter 14 with me. That's the chapter we're going to be in today. We're going to be looking at the story of the Red Sea. The story of the Red Sea. Uh, Just to catch us up to speed, as we remember from last week, Moses, as God's representative, goes to Pharaoh, who in the story is the anti-God, okay? He is uh, kind of representing Satan, the evil one, the one who is opposed to God. And and God says, hey, let's see who's really in charge. Let's see who's really God. And uh, God actually uses ten plagues to kind of show that he's in control of creation. He's the one who's actually controlling it, and and, and he holds it all together, and he is the rescuer. and, And that's when we have the substitute that God offers. Anybody who would believe would sacrifice the lamb and place the blood on the doorposts would be saved. And now, Egypt has finally said, we don't want you here anymore, Israel. Please leave us. 
And so Israel is finally rescued. They're led out by God into the wilderness. And this is probably within a couple of days now. God's leading them around. We'll pick up the story in Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 1. And it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite baal Zephon. So you see what happens there? God is leading them. In fact, we learned in the text earlier that God is leading them through a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud in the morning. And God comes to Moses as he's leading them, and he says, I want you to turn back. He's changing direction. He's changing course. And it says then two times that they're to go by the sea. They're to go by the sea. Why is God turning them from the course and specifically directing them to the sea? Well, we have to understand what sea represents uh, often in, in the Old Testament and in the New uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd love you to jump over with me to uh, the very back of your Bible, the book of Revelations. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 21. This will help us understand why going to the sea is so important here. This is why going to the sea is so important here. Now, uh, read with me Revelation 21. Verses 1 through 5. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Hold that. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. What's going on here is something that we call a chiastic arrangement. All right? Basically means that there are pairs within this text that... Uh, the pairs start at the top and the bottom, and they kind of work their way to the middle, which is what God really wants us to get, that God is going to dwell with us. But, but look at these pairs, okay? See if we start to see something. Uh, the, pair, uh, the first pair is the beginning of verse 1, new heaven and new earth, and the end of verse 5, or the middle of verse 5, I am making everything new, all right? You see that? It's a pretty obvious pairing. New heaven, new earth, I'm making everything new. The second one is uh, at the end of verse 1. It says, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Look at the end of verse 4. For the old order of things has passed away. Like, all right, you see that connection, right? Kind of the same thing, that pair. Look at the next pair. End of verse 1. There was no longer any sea, which is paired with, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. How is there will be no more sea connected to there will be no more death or crying or sorrow or pain? How are those two things connected? What does that have to do with sea? Well, commentators will tell you that the sea was often associated with chaos. 
Whenever we see them talking about the sea, the sea is often represented an ancient symbol for chaos, which stands in opposition to the good order of God's creation. We we see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of Genesis 1. It says that God hovered over the chaos of the waters. And then out of the chaos of the waters, God creates land. He brings land up and separates the waters. Then there's dry ground, and then from there, everything gets created, okay? God is taking the chaos of the deep, the chaos of the waters, and he brings land out of it as as a beginning of creating order out of chaos, we also see it in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 is the story of Noah, where sin has thrown the world into chaos. And so God unleashes the chaos of the flood to then sweep over the entire world. And therefore, then uh, after a time, God brings order back out of it by uh, 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 subduing the flood and allowing dry land to come back again. All right? It's, it's this creation uh, narrative, a recreation narrative in in chapter 6. Now, we are here in Exodus, and God is going to do the same thing. That's why he brings them to the sea. Uh, Listen to this quote from Mike Wilkerson. He says, The chaos of the sea is is like sin's vandalism of shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word that just means like peace, perfection, goodness. So the chaos of the sea is is sin's vandalism of that perfection. Both threaten to unmake God's creation. Yet God is greater, for wherever we find chaos and sin unmaking God's creation, we find a God who ultimately triumphs over them by making a new creation. Now listen, knowing what role chaos plays in God's story gives us a clue as to the significance of the Red Sea. It is the wiping away of something old and the dawning of of something new. God purposefully brings his people to the Red Sea. Look what we see now back in Exodus chapter 14 starting in verse 5. It says uh I'll flip over there. It says when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and all his officials changed their minds about them and said What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. So within a couple of days, we don't know exactly how long, could have been hours, could have been days. Pharaoh's like, what in the world have we done? We can't let them go like that. that, They're our slave labor. We need them here. Our economy is going to crumble without them. And so he loads up the chariots. When you load up the army, you're not going to have a kind conversation to see if we can talk this out. No, you're going to kick some tail. You're going to kill some folks and bring back slaves, captors. That's what you're trying to do. Pharaoh says, I'm going after Israel. I should have never let him go. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. You see, Israel's guilt had been removed at Passover. But Israel's shame was not gone yet. You see, they still saw themselves as slaves and captors. They did not see themselves as God's children. Their identity had not yet changed. 
they've seen some crazy stuff too, right? You ever think to yourself like, man, if I saw that stuff, like I wouldn't be worried about it. Like, I'd be like, bring it on, Pharaoh, right? But that, they're not. They're freaking out. They're, they're, they're going crazy. They have no faith at all that the God who has just delivered them is going to be able to deliver them again. They need their identity changed. They need to believe that they're actually God's children and that what God starts, God finishes and put their trust in that truth, that reality, rather than the one that they had experienced for so long in their lives. Sydney was doing really, really well in her relationship with God. Man, stuff was growing. She, she really started to fall in love with, with Jesus and, and, and it began to change her priorities and her passions. And She graduated, four-year varsity athlete, all A's, had all these great internships and experience. And she's like, I'm going to get this job and I'm going to climb the corporate ladder because the idea of uh, doing, right, the idea of wherever the bar is, I'm going to be better was still very much a part of who she was. And she's like, I'm going to be that one. And she thought she was going to get a a job like pretty easily. She had all this great experience and then nothing happened. She had to move back to GR. She wound up moving in with, with some family. She gets a job. Nothing's going the way that she anticipates or expects. And uh, she winds up with a job that she's actually starting to enjoy a little bit. There's a guy that works for her uh, that had just gone through a really bad breakup. And uh, Sydney's got a, a really empathetic heart. And uh, he, he needed Jesus. He didn't know Jesus. And so she thought that she had with some really pure motives at the very beginning, like, I... He needs, this is, I have something to offer him. The problem was is that uh, very quickly Sydney realized that she was falling for him. And she knew it wasn't what God desired for her life. She knew uh, it was not good and, and yet um, she, she finally decided, you know what, I, I want what I want and I don't believe that God is actually as good as, as what I can create for myself. And, uh, and so she got into the relationship and it went r- really quickly into very unhealthy ways and in, in, in all kinds of things. And they were living together for about a year and the relationship had all kinds of issues. And then one day, uh, one day she found out that he had been cheating on her with another coworker. And she was devastated and rocked and embarrassed and she felt guilt. She had been trying to go to church throughout that year, but the shame and the hypocrisy that she felt Uh, had kind of been overwhelming and she was never able to really fully engage. And now everybody knew. She'd been really open with her faith for a long time. Everybody at work knew that she was a Christian and yet everybody at work also knew that she had been living a double life. And the shame that she experienced uh, simply kind of began to overwhelm her and and, and something happened in that moment. Um, You see, the evil one came and started whispering things to her. He started saying things to her. He, he, he told her, uh, hey, remember, uh, this isn't the first time you've done this. This isn't the first time you've messed up. Uh, you're not actually changed. You're, you're no different than anybody else. Hey, Sydney, uh, um, this is actually who you are. You see, the evil one and, and, and shame, they actually sound very, very similar. You know why? Uh, because uh, Satan is also called the accuser. That's what he loves to do. He loves to try to tell you about what you used to be. 
He likes to try to remind you of that which used to be your identity but no longer is. But so often we fall into that trap. That's exactly what happens to Israel. They've experienced God and yet when Pharaoh's army comes uh, onto their heels and they've got no place to go, they're saying, man, who is this God? Why has he done this to us? God says, I need to change your identity, who you think you actually are. I need to help you know that you are not that thing anymore. You are something new. And that was really, really hard for Sydney to hear. And so God brings them to the sea on purpose. Moses, in verse 13, answers the people. He says, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. We sang that, that lyric in one of our songs just a little bit ago. You only need to be still. Verse 19. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. So God actually, who had been in front, now moves behind them. And this is pretty significant. You know what this is telling us? Is they're backed up, uh, backs against the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is right there. Like right there where they could come and attack and destroy them. And God then moves to the back of Israel to get in front of Egypt and Israel, right? And we find that God actually creates such a cloud of darkness that Egypt can't do anything. They can't move in. They can't get there. And God is about to do his rescue, and it's going to be amazing. Keep reading. Coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, over the chaos. And all that night the Lord drove the chaos back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. You hear this creation narrative happening again? Do you see it here? Uh, the waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into chaos, into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving and the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, over the chaos, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the chaos. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. Not one of them survived. This is actually called a trial by ordeal. It's actually an ancient uh, Near East understanding of what to do when you're trying to figure out who is innocent and who is guilty. So in the ancient Near East, if uh, the judges couldn't decide who it was that was actually guilty, somebody comes and and, and accuses somebody else, uh, they killed my wife, and the guy's like, no, I didn't kill his wife, and the judges don't know how to decide, they would do a trial by ordeal. They would take the accused and they would throw them into a river. And if the river gods then were left up to decide whether he was guilty or innocent, they would either, the river gods would either kill him and then he was guilty, or if he survived, 
then the river gods then declared that he's innocent and the other person, the accuser, would be killed. And everybody understood trial by ordeal. And so God uses this very concept to show that it's not the river gods, but Yahweh himself, who actually controls the seas, the chaos, and he allows Egypt to be thrown into the sea. But he holds the sea back and creates dry ground, this new creation for them to walk through on. And then he judges Pharaoh's army by allowing the army to come in and they are actually destroyed fully, totally, completely. Jesus also goes through a trial of ordeal. Trial by ordeal. When he's on the cross. Uh, The cross was intended to shame a person. To show that they were powerless. In fact, uh, in Colossians 2, it says that that the authorities that placed him on the cross were doing so to try to make a spectacle of them. But when Jesus raises from the dead, the cross actually makes a spectacle and puts shame on them rather than on Jesus. Jesus actually flips the script. The thing that was supposed to destroy him, the thing that was actually supposed to shame him, actually winds up showing that he is victorious and risen above. And so Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Right? In Christ, we're adopted sons and daughters. If you're a follower of Jesus then what Jesus has gone through, the death and resurrection, you are a part of. That, friends, is your identity. And this is actually what Sydney Sydney realized this past week when she was going through Rooted. Uh, Rooted is uh, is this discipleship, 10-week discipleship adventure that, uh, that a bunch of you are going on. There's like 100 and some of you. It's like a quarter of our church is going through this right now. So, so stinking excited. I can't wait for my small group to go through it in the spring. One of the weeks, though, is called the Strongholds Week. We talk about spiritual warfare and reality that, that there is a battle. And uh, strongholds are often these things that, that, that we think are kind of uh, these tough places in our lives. And, and, and we kind of break up guys and girls that particular week, and, and we talk through uh, some of those strongholds uh, that are in our lives that we kind of confess to each other, and, and, and we remind each other of our true identity. So that shame can be thrown away. So that shame can be removed. And, and uh, Sydney actually posted something last Monday after doing this time. Uh, I'd like to read to you uh, what she wrote. This is actually why I started a conversation with her and why she allowed me to share her story. says this, for years I had been hiding pieces of myself that I was convinced were too shameful to admit out loud, strongholds that have held me back in my relationship with God, fears the enemy had placed and rooted deep in my heart that I had kept hidden and protected behind blinds and doors because how could anyone still love me if they knew the truth? This weekend I chose to let the light in and touch even the darkest corners of my shame. And it was painful, and freeing, and terrifying, and amazing. And tonight, God reminded me of the story of Jonah. Uh, Do you know the story of Jonah? Jonah runs from God because he doesn't want to do what God asks him to do. And, And he's on the sea. And what happens? Big storm, chaos comes. And, and what do they do? 
They do a trial by ordeal. He's thrown into the sea. And God miraculously saves him and brings him where? To dry ground. The symbol of chaos and recreation. The same thing that happened at the beginning of creation, the same thing that happened with Noah, and the same thing that is happening there with uh, Israel and Egypt at the Red Sea. She goes on and says, I've been crying about how little I deserve and how much I've been given. Hallelujah for a patient and powerful and loving God who pursues you and me relentlessly. That's Sydney's story. That's what God wants to do for you and for me, friends. He doesn't simply want to remove our guilt. He wants to remove our shame because our shame is not something for us to carry. When Jesus died on the cross and rose back to life, he takes our guilt and our shame. You're not supposed to carry it anymore. Uh, Wilkerson says this. He says, your enemy has been disarmed and drowned along with the power of his condemning lies and shameful words, or shameful wounds. The burden of shame is not yours to bear any longer. It belongs with the rest of Egypt buried in the sea. What God has started, God will bring to completion. You can trust him in that, friends. And so I want to ask you today, what shame are you holding on to that is not yours to hold on to anymore? What thing in the past that you keep buried because you don't think anybody could actually love you if they knew? What do you need to let go of today? What do you need to throw into the sea? And so right now, we're just going to take two minutes. I'm going to let us listen to a song uh, that I love, that I've been playing on repeat over and over this past week because I need to be reminded of the truth of it. And I think you do as well. And I want you to allow the words to wash over you. And while you're doing that, sit with God. And if there's something you need to release, something you need to let go of, something you need to confess to him and just turn over, this is the time to do it. Listen to this song and listen to the voice of God. Because you finished what you start, I will trust you in the process. I Prophesy Your Promise by Brian and Katie Torwalt. You can check it out. Uh, friends, 
God wants to release you from your shame. It's the point of the cross, that he redeems you. He gives you a new name, a new identity. You are not what you were before. And so what I'd love for us to do as we close this morning is I'd love you to stand up and we're going to speak something over one another. We're going to speak this truth, this prayer, this desire over each other as a reminder. So would you read this together with me? Church, you are God's children, brothers and sisters of Jesus Most High. This is who you are, your true identity. So let's help each other remember it and live it. Let's take this out to a world that needs to hear. People that need to know that Jesus transforms lives, removes guilt and shame, gives us a new identity. You are holy. You are God's child. Remember that and go with it. Love you. We'll see you next Sunday.